Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for joining us this afternoon. So I am Paul Church. I'm Managing Director of Interquest. We are a tech, data and digital recruitment business. We've been running these webinars slash podcasts slash uh, community for about seven or eight months now. We've actually got quite a few new members in the last week or so. So we've got uh, 675 members now. So we're, you know, we're not that far away from 700. I'm sure we'll be knocking on a thousands door very soon. So thank you for liking, for sharing, for commenting, for being a part of these. Really, really do appreciate it. If you do enjoy today uh, or think it's at least uh, worthwhile and some value in it, please do pop us a comment on LinkedIn. It does help drive more traffic to this community and these webinar series. So last week, we had a, a really good episode with uh, focusing on women in technology. We had uh, Maya and Anna, and um, we're going to keep the conversation going around winning technology. I mean, it, 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 it's everywhere, improving the, the diversity of uh, tech teams in the UK and, and outside the UK, of course. Um, so every month we'll be running a Women in Technology special episode on that to keep uh, sharing journeys and challenges uh, individuals face on their way to becoming senior people in technology and also what businesses can do to help create a more diverse tech team. But today, we are talking about IR35. Some of the people in this room I've spoken to around IR35, and I last year became a bit of an accidental, uh, I suppose, expert on it because I spent most of Q1 visiting all our clients and giving, giving as best advice as I could to try and uh, make sure our clients were prepared for IR35. Then it got delayed, so and then this thing called COVID happened. Uh, we had to worry about that instead. However, it is happening this year. Uh, as far as we know, I'm assuming it's going ahead, Ryan. I'm, I'm guessing it is. And we need to be prepared for it as much as possible. And it's not the most uh, sexy subject, but it's certainly a necessary one. And um, the idea is that in the next 55 minutes or so, you should have all the information you need around it. Ryan uh, Dawson, our guest I'll introduce in a second, is going to be presenting around IR35 and all, all the things we need to know. Everyone can ask some questions on it afterwards and hopefully we'll all go away from here knowing a little bit more, well, everything we need to know about IR35. So our guest today is uh, Ryan Dawson. Ryan is a project manager at Kingsbridge. Uh, Kingsbridge are a, a business that we at Interquest have partnered with this year to make sure we've got access to all the best information and the best kind of solutions for our clients around IR35. So whilst I think I know a fair bit about it, uh, I certainly don't know as much as this man. Um, so Ryan, welcome to the webinar. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much, Paul. Um, yeah, it's, um, I guess, to, to kind of just pick up on one point there, you know, this isn't the most glamorous of subject by any means, but we should all have an interest in it because if we're engaging with contractors, if we're placing contractors, this will impact you. This will affect the way that perhaps your workforce um, even operates. Um, so it's important to just know even just the kind of basics so that you know you can take that knowledge forward and therefore develop it. These rules are absolutely happening. So although that you know these these were delayed uh, last April because of COVID, unfortunately, you know, all indications this time around are that this this is going ahead. HMRC have all but pretty much confirmed that. You know, there's new guidance coming out every day about how you can best prepare. So absolutely don't hang your hat on this being postponed again. It is certainly going to come in on April 6th, unless something really dramatic happens, which um, I wouldn't say is not entirely possible, but very unlikely at this stage. Yeah, thanks, Ryan. I actually, you know, I did think last this time last year when they delayed it, I thought there's no way they'll go ahead with it next year because I don't think the world's going to be sorted out by then. But so I certainly owe a few people a few drinks based on that because I did make that bet. <laughs> but Ryan, just I'm gonna so just just for everyone's benefit as well, I should point out that Ryan's got a problem with his camera, so you won't be able to see his face today. But he is here, as you can see his name on the screen. Ryan, just just while I share the screen and get this presentation ready, do you want to just give a bit of background on yourself and of Kingsbridge as well, just to kind of set the scene a bit? 
Um, yeah, sure. So um, in terms of me personally, I've been working with uh, Status for quite a few number of years now. I've done this particular job at uh, three different companies, but obviously most recently I am a I35 project manager here at Kingsbridge. And so effectively, Kingsbridge are historically known as a contractor insurance provider. So most of you, if you've had any interaction with Kingsbridge in the past, will know us for the contractor insurance piece that we offer, particularly around the kind of limited company contractor insurance. So PI, PL, EL insurances and currently we insure roughly 60,000 UK limited company contractors in in that respect. Uh, we also partner with about 700 to 1,000 different agencies in the UK. So that is to both provide those agencies with their own insurances, so their own PI, but we also partner with them in respects of contractor insurance and now IR35. Me and the team that I'm in here at Kingsbridge, which is, I guess, the IR35 focused team, we will effectively support all of those contractors that that we have on books and also the, the partners that we work with in respects of the agencies to effectively manage these reforms in the best way possible. So what we've done is create a kind of complete solution uh, whereby we can help you assess the status of your workforce as well as an insurance policy at the back end of that that can then protect you against the unlikely event that we get it wrong. Headed up here at Kingsbridge is uh, a gentleman called Mr. Andrew Vesey. Andy, some of you may know or have heard of within the ITD5 space, but he is considered one of the most or the foremost expert within IR35 in the UK. He's personally defended roughly 600 IR35 inquiries and of that 600 has only lost four. So in terms of a business, we're quite lucky that we've got an extremely big reach in terms of the agencies and contractors that we can help. But we've also then got that kind of supported with, I would argue, one of the most successful teams within IR35 anywhere in the UK. When we're covering IR35, the most important thing is to really cover off everything start to finish you know kind of what's happened what is it whose job is it to currently look at status and so on um, so i'm hoping that the majority of this that we go over is probably stuff that you've already heard of or or know but it but it can't hurt to obviously go back over it the starting point here then is looking at really what ir35 is important to note that this is nothing new so these rules being introduced are effectively nothing necessarily new ir35 has been around for quite some time and in fact it was introduced in the year 2000 it was introduced at the time by the Chancellor, that was Gordon Brown, and it was designed to tackle the concern that the government had. It was possible for someone to leave work as an employee on a Friday, only to return the following Monday to do pretty much exactly the same job, just engaged indirectly as a consultant. The problem here, obviously, for the Inland Revenue, as it was known at the time, uh, was that this particular area of tax and the rules around self-employment were fairly lax and uh, contractors or employees come contractors could effectively transfer their status from that of an employee to a limited company or a partnership really, really easily. And if they had a, a fairly good accountant, they could do that overnight. So as quickly as the accountant could do it, the contractor would, would transfer their, their status and they would just be engaged as a consultant. The problem here for HMRC, of course, is that these employees come contractors were taxing themselves in a very tax efficient way. So the, the contractor would typically pay themselves an extremely low salary, which would attract little to absolutely no NIC whatsoever. And then they'll take the majority of their income as a dividend. So HMRC identified these individuals doing it. Uh, didn't necessarily have a name for it. So they decided to call them disguised employees. And uh, that gave birth really to these rules and as we know them today as IR35. It was designed really to combat the more kind of professional contractors such as um, IT contractors, maybe financial contractors that could quite easily transfer their status but uh, they were simply just conducting the same work on the same terms Monday to Friday, nine till five um, and didn't really run a proper uh, business of their own in the background. So when then uh, companies such as Kingsbridge who will 
you know go through and look at status when when we do that and we say well actually yep for for this engagement i35 will apply um what is it that we actually mean by that and what we mean by that is we're effectively saying that i35 will apply if a worker is providing their services to an end client via an intermediary so that intermediary has to be a personal service company uh, or as we probably know it most commonly today a contractor's limited company but if that contractor had just been engaged directly with the employee so the end client and the the employee were just simply kind of engaged directly. So there was no limited company between the two. Would that worker just be classed as a normal employee? So is the way that they operate just simply akin to an employee? And that's essentially what what you're asking. So that that question in the middle there is, in a broad sense, what you're asking. If the intermediary did not exist, would the worker be an employee? If the answer is yes, then you would say that I-35 will apply. If the answer is no, then you would say I-35 does not apply, i.e. inside or outside of I-35. Very, very important to note that when you are looking at status, when you're actually determining whether the engagement is inside or outside of I-35, you're looking at just that. You're looking at the engagement. You're not looking at the person. So no one's going to say, right, you know, uh, Paul, you are caught by the rules. You are inside or you are outside. You're always talking about the engagement that that person is on. So their their contract is caught. Their contract is inside or their contract is outside of I-35. Very, very important that, that you make that distinction because it's absolutely possible that a contractor could have perhaps maybe two or three engagements running at any one time with different end clients or with the same end client with a different status. So a contractor could have one contract that's inside of I-35, but at the same time have a different end client with a contract that is outside of I-35. So very, very important. You're always looking at this from a contract by contract basis. Just on that, Ryan, question yeah. uh, for me, um, and I should point out to everyone, if you've got anyone got any questions, you put them in the chat box as we go along. Is it how negative an impact on a contractor's limited company status would it be if they've got inside and outside I-35 contracts. But they, I suppose a lot of contracts sometimes are a bit concerned about HMRC backdating, going back through past history, if that makes sense. So is that a challenge or not? Not necessarily, no, because if you've got multiple clients, regardless of the status of those contracts, what you're basically evidencing is that your business is is operating as a genuine business. You know, if, if you were a, um, I don't know, if I use the example of, say, like a plumber, it's likely that a plumber might have two or three different jobs running at any one time, you know, with, with, with different clients. Well, that is a genuine business. An uh, employee, on the other hand, would, would typically only have one end hire. You know, I work for Kingsbridge. I'm engaged for Kingsbridge. I'm not engaged with multiple end clients. Whereas if I was a contractor, it might be perfectly feasible that, you know, I would run my business as a business and I might have multiple different end clients that I perform different work for. Certainly no no negative to having more than one client. If anything, you know, it's a positive because you're you're demonstrating a, a genuine uh, business in engaging with multiple clients at once. Thanks, Ryan. Got a, got a question from but Bettle Toro, okay, uh, what if the nature of your business does not allow you to have more than one client, like program managers? Well, I mean, that's just a business choice. You know, if the nature of that work dictates that you can only have one client at a time, well, then that's that. You know, there's, there's certainly no, no negative to it. If you have one client, yes, you might be able to argue that you are dependent on that one client. But, you know, certainly from an I-35 perspective, if it's reasonable that you would not be able to have multiple clients, then yeah, by all means, you know, you could make that argument. But, you know, what what this this next slide does is it's actually kind of highlight what you should be looking at instead. So looking at multiple clients is an indicator, yes, but in respects of kind of how important it is in the overall status, we might consider that to be a minor status test. What's key here is when you're looking at status, you've got to remember that case law is always going to 
basically give us those principles. It's always going to give us the guidance in terms of how we look at status. The case of the highest uh, kind of relevance to looking at employment status is a case called the ready-mix concrete case. Hopefully, some of you are aware of that or at least know what it is. But the reason it's so important is because it gives us what are called the uh, three trinity of status tests, which are still used in pretty much every single I-35 inquiry or indeed anything really to do with employment status. And it gives us the test that we need to apply. Now, ReadyMix Concrete actually predates I-35 and it's got nothing to do with I-35 whatsoever. But as I say, it gives us those three tests that are used in pretty much everything today relating to employment status. Now, those three tests come in the form of control. So basically including the, the when, the how, the what, the where. They include personal service, which includes the right to provide a substitute as well. And the test that HMRC failed to consider in any kind of great detail, which is the tests of MOO or mutuality of obligation. Now, those three are the key tests. That's, that's what will carry the most weighting when looking at any of your engagements. So if you um, have a contractor on board, those are the three tests that you'll pretty much apply to see whether or not that, that individual is going to be inside or outside of I-35. But although they're the most important, there are also multiple minor status tests that you've got to consider. There's a whole host of minor status tests, but just to kind of rattle off three of the more important, uh, the first of which being financial risk. You're saying, look, you know, how much financial risk is that contractor genuinely exposed to? Um, so this can come in the form, for example, of asking whether or not the contractor might hold business insurance. You know, if if the contractor can be open to a claim against their insurances, such as PI, et cetera, well, that's a genuine financial risk. You know, that's a that's a genuine financial risk that the contractor holds. And it also demonstrates, you know, by by holding insurance that the contractor is taking their business seriously. You know, me as an employee, I don't hold insurances to protect Kingsbridge. If I was a contractor, then it'd be perfectly reasonable that my limited company would hold business insurance to protect my company and me against any potential claims from my client. That one's quite important. Second point there to mention around those kind of minor status tests is around your own equipment or the provision of equipment. You're kind of really breaking it down and saying, look, you know, most contractors should be providing their own equipment for the role that they're working on. The more specialist that equipment, the better. But where it's reasonable for the end client to provide you with perhaps a laptop, uh, stationary tools, et cetera, then it's perfectly reasonable for that to happen. You know, a fairly straightforward example is, um, you know, if you've got a, a contractor who is a IT contractor and they're contracting for a big bank, it's not reasonable to expect the contractor to just walk into the bank with their iPad, plug it in and just start, you know, taking away numbers, figures, data, et cetera, from that system. You know, it's it's reasonable to say that the end client or the bank would give a laptop for that person to work under. Um, and the final of the status test I'm just going to mention is integration or the actual lack of integration. So this one, again, really important because end clients should be effectively making it relatively straightforward to identify who is a contractor and who is an employee. So really making that distinction, ensuring that the two different avenues of workers are treated differently. Typically speaking, a contractor should not enjoy the same benefits as a employee. It should be fairly obvious to somebody going on site who's a contractor or a visitor, and who is an employee. Where you start to get those two things, I guess, intertwined, that's when you can say, well, actually, no, the, the contractor is clearly just, just part of the furniture here. They are clearly just operating as a, as a normal employee. Although the three key status tests at the top are the most important, do not underestimate the minor status test because once you have that full holistic view of what status is, you effectively need to kind of stand back from that and on balance say, right, is this individual a employee? Or are they self-employed? That's what it comes down to, you know, considering all those facts and circumstances and then making that judgment. So before April then, so looking at I-35 right now, what is the current rule set? Well, currently the rules are found within uh, chapter eight 
part two of the Income Tax Owners and Pensions Act. More specifically, it's within sections 48 to 61 of that particular piece of legislation. And effectively, in the private sector currently, the the contractor is going to be responsible for deciding their own I-35 status. And with that decision, the contractor is also going to be the party who carries the tax liability of whatever that decision is. Uh, So on the right-hand side of the screen there, you can see what a typical supply chain might look like at the moment. So you've got your end-user client at the very top. You've then got the agency beneath that. You've then got the personal service company, which for this example, we'll, we'll say is the limited company of the contractor. And then you've got the worker beneath that as well. Typically speaking at the moment, the PSC is going to be the party in the chain. So the personal service company will be the party in the chain looking at status. And then the personal service company will be the one saying, yes, I'm inside or outside of I-35. And with that, that PSC will also carry the tax liability for that choice. A contractor typically will will take a fair bit of due diligence and reasonable care in doing that. So there's effectively two elements of status that you're going to assess, one half being the contract and the other half being the working practices. So we've got the actual written terms of the engagement and how that kind of plays out on paper versus the working practices. So how the actual day-to-day of that job plays out. Very, very important that those two things mirror each other. Importance uh, of that is, of course, if you have a contract that is completely bulletproof in terms of I-35. So, you know, you've got all your relevant terms around control, personal service, mutuality of obligation, etc. And for all intensive purposes, the contract is solid. If you then have the actual day-to-day of the engagement, uh, just simply no difference that of an employee of the end clients, then what HMRC will accuse you of is uh, the, the contract being a sham. Uh, so if the contract is a sham, they'll simply disregard it as though it really should kind of never have existed. And they'll simply just build a picture based upon the working practices, which obviously if the working practices are bad, will not work in your favor whatsoever. So it's really important that the contract and the working practices are equally compliant and that they equally do reflect what's going on in each part there. So, you know, l- looking at the contract and the working practices in isolation, they should reflect each other. Just on that, Ryan, so I think we've got a question from the previous slide, really, from Ben. It's on the chat, but I'll read it out. So on integration, do you feel that once a contractor has been contracting over X amount of years, they would then realistically fall within IR35? Not necessarily. Uh, Time on a contract isn't necessarily an indicator of of someone's status you know it's it's perfectly possible if if you were to to contract on someone's or have a contract for say 5 to 6 years as long as your working practices are still consistently outside of IR35 then you would be considered outside of IR35 you know it's those same employment principles that you're applying. I think the reason that we think, or or at least we assume that the longer you're on a contract, the less likely it is that you're going to be outside of I-35 is because over time, those working practices can soon become more akin to that of an employee. For example, you start to naturally become friends with people at, at that end client's business. You perhaps start integrating into the way that that business works. They perhaps start seeing you as more of an employee because you're there more often than not. The key thing is that you have to remember, regardless of the length of contract, if you are a contractor, you need to operate as a contractor. And if at any point you feel that the relationship is beginning to turn into that of an employee and your your working practices are are beginning to change, then you need to have that conversation with the client to just say, look, I've noticed over time these working practices are slipping into a bit of a gray area. You know, can we just make sure that this relationship is one of a contractor to end client and not of a employee to employer? So really, really important, you know, just keep an eye on kind of what's happening. And that same thing will apply to the end client. The end client's going to have to keep an eye on that as well, because ultimately the reason that these changes are happening 
uh, is so that the responsibility and burden goes on to the end client. So the end client's going to have to consider that now as well going going forward. Gotcha. Thanks, Ryan. Um, so that, that brings us nicely actually onto um, this slide here. So after April then, so the reason why essentially we're, we're all making so much noise about these changes and about IR35, well, new rules are essentially being implemented in April of this year uh, that will transfer the responsibility of assessing IR35 away from the personal service company. So basically away from the contractor. And instead, that responsibility is going into the hands of the end client providing that end client is classified as a medium or large size business. If the end client is not a medium or large size business, uh, then quite simply, these changes coming in will not affect that particular end client. And instead, the current rule set will apply. And in that circumstance, the client will qualify for the small company exemption. And if, uh, as an end client, you want to see whether or not you will qualify as a small company, uh, the criteria is found all within Section 382 of the Companies Act, but we'll cover that off on the next slide to come anyway. So on the right-hand side there, you can basically see what's, what's happening to these rules. Typical supply chain, end-user client at the very top, they are going to be the party now who are actually responsible for looking at status. You've then got the recruitment agency in the chain. Now, the recruitment agency is going to be the fee payer. So the recruitment agency will carry the tax liability. Uh, and then beneath that, you've got the personal service company and the worker. This can be a bit of a difficult concept to get your head around because naturally you assume responsibility with liability. That's kind of naturally the way that you assume this would work. Well, that's not how this works. The way that this is working is the end client will be responsible for looking at status and providing that they overcome the barriers and the hurdles put in front of them. Then what they will do is discharge their tax liability to the fee payer in the chain. And that is going to be the agency who is closest to the worker. You can see there, you know, you've got one party responsible for the uh, role of actually looking at status, another party then looking at the job of having that tax liability. If, of course, you had no recruitment agency involved, then quite simply the end client would assume both of those two roles. So the end client would be looking at status and they would hold the tax liability. But crucial, where there is that agency in the chain, the agency becomes liable for the tax due. So a couple of those hurdles then, what are the things that the client has to overcome? I've mentioned a couple of them on here. And the first thing to note is that the way that IR35 is assessed is not changing. So we're not saying there's a completely new rule book that you've got to start looking at, at status with. The same principles that we've covered off earlier will apply. But quite often, and is sometimes the most sort of difficult part of the process for the client, is they've got to make a decision about status. Now, this can be tricky for clients that have got no real experience in looking at employment status. So they may wish to obviously reach out to the private sector where, you know, as I say, companies like, like Kingsbridge can effectively assess the workforce on your behalf. But, you know, that, that, that's a starting point. They've, they've got to make a decision about status. When they're doing that, they've also got to take reasonable care. So this is a relatively new concept being introduced kind of formally by the revenue. They're now saying the client must take reasonable care when assessing the I-35 status. There is no definition of what reasonable care means. There is some good guidance, however, from, from HMRC that, that, that gives us a bit of an indication as to what reasonable care might look like. And that's all found within the employment status manual, more specifically the reference on screen there, which is 10014. I definitely recommend that you read that. It will definitely help you in, in terms of understanding what's going to be required of the entire supply chain when looking at status. So certainly take five or so minutes to, to look at that. The next kind of barrier on this uh, list then is the client also has to pass the decision 
down the supply chain via a status determination statement. So you can see on the uh, right-hand side there, I've kind of put the, the SDS on the side. That SDS has to come all the way down the chain. So it's it's got to touch base at the agency and the worker all, all the way at the bottom. And everyone's got to be crystal clear as to what status is. So that SDS must contain the reasons for, for the outcome. It's got to contain the actual conclusions as to why the decision is outside or inside of I-35, and it's got to be quite detailed. You know, it's it's got to break down really what what the circumstances are of the engagement. And the final burden then is once they've issued the SDS, they need to react to challenges of status. So although there's no uh, real formal, I guess, route that you can go to a kind of independent arbitrator or anything like that when looking at status, what HMRC have done is given a bit of an avenue for the contractor to at least mount their disagreement with the end client. So if the end client issues status down the supply chain, either the worker or the agency or both can appeal the SDS and they can give their reasons for why they think that SDS is incorrect or perhaps give some more evidence as to, you know, basically saying, look, you as the client have not considered this piece of evidence. After you consider it, would you change my status? We'll cover off kind of what that will entail in a bit more detail next. But those are essentially some of the burdens or kind of the more prevalent burdens that the client's got to overcome. And if they do not overcome those burdens, so let's assume that the client does not issue the I-35 status by the SDS down the supply chain, then what will happen is that tax liability that they originally transferred to the agency will instead transfer back up to the end client. Um, so plenty of moving parts. It, again, can be a difficult one to kind of follow. But if the agency's carrying the tax liability and something in that supply chain happens that's out of their control, i.e. the end client has not taken reasonable care or they've not actually assessed status, then the tax liability that was going to be on the recruitment agency transfers up to the end client. So I'm hoping that what you can see here is end clients do have a genuine incentive to get this right, because if they get it right, they pass the tax liability to a different party in the chain. So just a couple of the considerations that we mentioned there then. The first one, of course, is the small company exemption criteria. And this is really focused for end clients. So if the end client is a medium or large size business, new rules coming in within chapter 10 will apply. If, however, the end client qualifies as a small company, then for the purposes of IR35, the contractor will still be responsible for their own status, i.e. the current rule set will just continue to apply. So a end client, to be classified as a small company must not satisfy any two of those three criteria at the top. So the end client must not have a turnover of more than 10.2 million. They must not have a balance sheet of more than 5.1 million, and they must not have more than 50 employees. If the end client exceeds any two of those three, then for the purposes of IR35, they will be classed as a medium or large size business, and the responsibility of looking at status will rest with that particular end client. Now, that can create some uncertainty. Um, I've certainly seen it with some end clients that have engaged with us here at Kingsbridge, where they're hoping to try and stay silent on their size in the hope perhaps this will go away, perhaps the contractor will just look at status themselves. So what HMRC have done is introduced uh, section 60H of the new rules that uh, basically creates a burden that the client must respond to any question around the uh, client's size in a timely manner. So if the worker so if, if the contractor or the uh, agency in the chain decides that they want to question the, the client and, and ask formally, what is your size, then the end client must respond within 45 days of that request, telling the supply chain exactly what their size is and who's going to be responsible for status. The client would say something along the lines of, yes, we qualify as a medium or large size company, therefore it's going to be us looking at the rules. Or they might say, no, we qualify as a small company, therefore 
the contractor will will need to be looking at their own I-35 status. Uh, but really important, they must respond to that request within 45 days. Otherwise, the end client will hold the tax liability for that engagement, regardless of who's looking at status. Um, the other point that we're going to mention uh, is the burden of reacting to challenges of I-35 status. Um, so again, this is introduced within section 61T of the new rules. And the rules essentially need the client to have a status disagreement process in place to deal with any dispute by a contractor or an agency that the contractor goes to and engages with. And as a minimum, they've got to consider the representations made. So they they can't simply fob off or kind of you know, completely disregard those pieces of evidence made by the contractor or, or the party that they've contracted with. They need to actually consider them and they need to then respond to the worker or the agency within 45 days, giving either a new SDS or they need to respond simply saying, actually, we believe the original SDS was, was correct, therefore we're not changing it and instead the same one will apply. Again, the end client must do that within 45 days of receiving that appeal because if they do not, then that tax liability will stay with the client. So regardless of what's happened, if they do not respond to those challenges kind of timely within that 45-day period, uh, then that tax liability will rest with the client. There is that incentive there. So HMRC are, are basically saying, look, yes, you can have a bit of time to respond to them if you wish and kind of handle it internally. But if the client's doing everything timely, if they're doing everything in a quick fashion, then the incentive is there because it, it essentially relinquishes them of the tax liability. That should hopefully encourage clients to deal with those, those appeals seriously and actually handle them correctly. Thanks, Ryan. Just, just a question that's come through from Peter. Is it HR's responsibility to put this disagreement process in place? Well, there's no set definition as to you know which party at your business needs to put that in place. All that's needed is that as a client, as an end client, you just need to have it in place. I don't know kind of what solution it is that you're using or how you're assessing status, but um, speaking on behalf of Kingsbridge, what, what we have is inside of the tool that we offer is an integrated process. So rather than it being managed kind of externally, the tool will handle and deal with any dispute given by the agency or the worker. So the end client will then simply just go back into their portal, be able to see the dispute and manage it internally in in the tool. So effectively what it creates is an auditable trail. And either way, that's what you need to be kind of implementing in inside of your business if you don't have a tool as such that, that you're using. You know, if if you were just assessing status via, for example, the HMRC CES tool, then you would have to have your own process in place. Whatever that may look like is completely down to you. Uh, but as long as it's robust enough to deal with either the volume of contractors that might appeal, um, and as long as you can then effectively properly consider those appeals, then you're absolutely satisfying what is going to be needed of you. Um, but certainly don't don't leave that one last minute. Um, I would get that in place sooner rather than later, because as soon as you start issuing those SDSs, especially if you're issuing inside of I-35 SDSs, you're likely to see contractors, you know, just appeal that status because the avenue's there for them. So get that in place sooner rather than later. Thanks, Ryan. Hope that answered the question, Peter. Um, so just to, I guess, cover off a little bit more about reasonable care, because it's a it's a fairly new concept that we're seeing introduced, albeit it's been around for a long time in case law, but we've never really had any guidance from HMRC uh, in terms of what that means or indeed how they actually you know, interpret it. The first thing to mention here is obviously that what, what HMRC is saying is that if the client takes reasonable care when looking at status, then as far as the rules are are concerned, HMRC are doing everything that's needed of them. But if the client fails to take reasonable care, then the job of actually deducting taxes, NIC, the payment of the apprenticeship levy, et cetera, will stay in the hands of the end client. So they they effectively will not transfer that 
over to the agency or the fee pair in that chain. And one of the most important things to, to note, to, just before we cover off a few of the examples, is that the, the bigger your organization, so the, the bigger your business as an end client, the higher that burden of reasonable care is. So if you are a huge, big multinational uh, company with a ton of resource to throw at IR35, then you would have a higher degree of reasonable care expected of you than a smaller end client with perhaps not as big a resource to actually pile into this. That's very important to note because you've you've basically got to say, well, you know, how big's our company? If we've got loads of resource, then we need to look like we're we're doing a lot more than perhaps a much smaller company. I understand that that for some clients that might be a, a bit of a well, hang on, you know, what's the point in that? Ultimately, if the process looks fine and, and operates efficiently, then what does the size matter? HMRC unfortunately have just just taken a different approach than perhaps the industry would have liked them to. But they have given us some indications of what good and bad behavior look like. Now, again, I would encourage you to go and read ESM 10014, which is where all this comes from, uh, because you will get a good understanding of what HMRC are expecting of your entire supply chain. Uh, but to cover off a couple of the examples, of course, these are not limited to the ones that I've got on the um, slide here. But good examples include accurately applying and keeping record of employment status principles. So making sure that over time, you are building a completely transparent log of, of what it is you're assessing and what the results of those outcomes were. If you do not have the knowledge in-house to deal with I-35, if, if this is something new to your business, good examples of reasonable care are you know, going and seeking the advice of someone qualified to, to do so. And again, you know, engaging with a private sector company is a perfect way of actually demonstrating that. Having someone with a good understanding of the work to be undertaken involved in the process of getting status it is, again, a, a big indicator that you're taking it seriously. So that, that might be involving hiring managers, perhaps, who know what the contractors are actually doing on a day-to-day -day basis. That, that will demonstrate that the, you are effectively taking this seriously. And if there's any material changes to a worker's terms and conditions or working practices, then you need to consider status again. So we're not basically saying, yep, this is happening once, and then you're not going to have to look at this ever again. You're going to have to consider status for as long as you engage that contractor. And then for every new contractor, the same thing will apply. And if at any point you say, well, actually, the workers' terms and conditions or the way that they're working is changing, then you have a job of actually reassessing status. That all goes a long way in evidencing that, that you're taking this seriously and assessing status when you need to. Um, so just to then cover off a few of the examples of bad behaviours, I appreciate it can feel a bit like I've been told off at, at school when I go through some of these, but some of the indications or, or behaviours that HMRC have highlighted that will show a lack of reasonable care. First of all, they've kind of tried to cover off those instances where if you were to look at your entire workforce and simply just say you're all inside of I-35, well, that is not allowed. That is not taking reasonable care. If you do not give any proper consideration to the workers' terms and conditions or perhaps the uh, facts of each engagement, as I say, then that's an indication that you are not taking reasonable care. If you're failing to reconsider any kind of uh, SDS or any kind of outcome where there have been changes in circumstances, once again, that is showing a lack of reasonable care. If there is an absence of any proper support or training within your business uh, in respect of IR35 or in respect of the individuals actually completing the assessments and their knowledge of IR35, then again, that's a bad indicator. If you're failing to account for all relevant evidence, again, HMRC are saying that that's a bad indicator. You know, you, you need to consider all facts that are going to be relevant to making those SDS outcomes possible. If the person tasked with actually doing it, so if, if the person who's completing those SDSs does not possess either the knowledge around IR35 or does not know how that engagement is going to be operating day to day, then that, again, is a big indicator that you are not taking reasonable care. 
And then the final one I'm going to mention here is where you perhaps subcontract the SDS process. So let's assume that you are using a private sector company to uh, run through these assessments on your behalf. When you get those SDSs back, when you receive the SDS back to then issue to the rest of your supply chain, you must confirm the accuracy of it. So it's no good you just simply saying, oh, well, someone else has done it. It's not our fault. You are going to be ultimately responsible for it. So you need to check the contents of it and ensure that it's accurate. Very, very important because, you know, if you are not taking reasonable care, as I say, that leaves the door wide open for HMRC to start looking at many other elements of, of that engagement. And it also places the end client at a further degree of risk because the, the tax liability will transfer back to them. Now, that from me, I believe, is, is everything. I'm, I'm more than happy to open it up to, to you, Paul, or any questions that, that anyone has to ask. Thank you very much, Ryan. Let me uh, just stop sharing there. So, yeah, absolutely. So, they're very comprehensive there, Ryan. So, thank you for being so thorough. Um, anyone who's got any questions now is definitely the time to ask. The reasonable care element is interesting. And I think um, I was going to ask you, but I'm glad I waited, actually. I think uh, when IR35 was, was meant to be hitting last year, a lot of the headlines in back end of 2019 was all the banks and the GSKs doing blanket decisions. And that you're saying that's actually outside of reasonable care, isn't it? So there's two different elements of kind of blanket bans that you need to look at. So there's there's two different types. So the ones that you described there, so the likes of GSK, the likes of Barclays, HSBC, et cetera. I'm sure there's there's tons of others out there that have done it, where they're saying, well, we're not going to engage with limited company contractors. That in itself is perfectly fine. If they're saying we are not engaging with contractors via a limited company, unfortunately, and as unfortunate as it is for contractors, that is a business a choice made by that particular end client it has nothing really to do with I-35 as such, although the reason behind it might be. Unfortunately, from an I-35 perspective, there's nothing really wrong with it. It's just simply that they're saying, we're not going to take on the risk. We're simply not going to engage with contractors. And that's likely the advice that you would get if you went to, for example, a big four accountancy and you said, I want to eliminate my risk by not engaging with contractors whatsoever. You are effectively getting rid of that risk. What HMRC are trying to cover is where a client, for example, says, we believe that everybody's inside of IR35. So therefore, there is no tax liability because everybody's being paid essentially on those higher rates. And where that happens, there is, in essence, no real due care or look at any of the individual circumstances of those contractors. And that's what you can't do. You cannot sweeping brush say all of these individuals are caught. You need to be looking at the individual circumstances of those workers because there are things that you may not have considered, such as tests around business on own account. So, you know, what does that individual's business do in the background that perhaps you haven't considered? That's the two different types, I guess, of kind of blanket ban as they've been known one of them if they're saying we're not engaging contractors is fine but if they're saying actually we believe everybody's caught by these rules that's not okay certainly where you've got contractors that operate on different circumstances they simply cannot do that cool thanks Ryan. and then uh, another question for me before i go to the box we've got a couple in there um with um i suppose to go back to ben's question earlier on around kind of the timings and how length of contracts can affect determinations i think what you were saying was as long as everything else is kind of ticking the boxes to be outside then it's fine what, what if, if there's somebody who's kind of in contract for i don't know let's say two years is there not a kind of a part and parcel type argument to that to say it would be inside or is it was again is it just down to more about the ins and outs of how the work's been performed so it will always come down to how the work's being performed but what you effectively can argue you know is the longer you're on that engagement the easier it is to fall into bad habits if you're on a contract for a, for a short period of time, it's quite easy to effectively you know, keep compliant because you, you know that you're just going in to do a job. You're going to leave at you know, two, three, four, six months time, whatever it might be. Whereas if you're there for a longer period of time, you, know, you, you naturally become 
friends with the people that are there. You might get a invite to the Christmas party. You might start receiving some uh, benefits of the staff or benefits that, that those staff have, um, which from an I-35 perspective is bad because you're, you're, you're then starting to become part and parcel of the end client's organization, which from an I-35 perspective, as I say, you know, that's what you want to avoid. Um, so really making it clear for as long as those contractors are on site, for as long as those contractors are engaged with, with an end client, that there is a distinction. And there are certain things that you can start to do. You know, for example, we've seen some clients start to insist that contractors wear either the Something like a lanyard that that you know you can brand up, for example, in the agency's colours or or names, perhaps in the end client's colours, but where it clearly says like you know contractor visitor, where you clearly have dedicated uh, sign-offs for external consultants or anything like that on their emails. That goes a long way because if I then walk onto your your client site and say to any of the employees, identify to me who's a contractor and who's an employee. It should be relatively straightforward because you can go, oh yeah, you know this this person here is a contractor, this person's an employee, and this is how they they perhaps work differently within that particular organisation. Well, a couple of questions in the box. So, question was, Ryan, what do you see as the biggest fallout in terms of the negative impact of this implementation? The biggest fallout for me is going to be clients that don't deal with this effectively in the most appropriate way. You're probably already seeing it. Um, you know, Many of you on this call have probably already had some dealings of it. End clients that are not dealing with I-35 efficiently in, in the right way, clients that are not effectively tackling it head on and are looking to skirt around it by, as I say, you know, blanket banning contractors, those are going to get bad reputations. You know, they're going to be known for that for, for a long time. And I think what, what businesses and especially recruiters need to ask themselves in all this is in five years time in a year's time whatever it might be if someone says you know what do you want to be known for in respect of i35 you want to be known as the the company that did more for those contractors you want to be known as the business that kind of went out your way to engage contractors compliantly that for me is going to be the biggest fallout it's it's going to be those clients that simply aren't you know handling this very well are making you know quite rash choices and are ultimately losing the best talent um, because the best contractors will continue to find contracts that are outside of I-35. They'll continue to, to find those engagements, uh, which ultimately will cost other clients in, in respect of their talent pool. So just going through the chat box now. So Ben has said, really good presentation. Thank you, Ryan. I need to jump up now, but we'll catch up soon with me. Uh, thank you, Ben. One of, one of my colleagues has asked a question, which I, I'm going to tailor it and be a bit more direct around it. Um, what's your opinion of the CES tool, Ryan? Um, sure. Um, how long have you got? <laughs> is, the, is the answer right? So to kind of not be completely negative, the CES tool is improving. It's getting better, but it's still nowhere near where it needs to be. You know, I I, I would say it is not fit for purpose yet. Whether that changes in in time or not, we'll see. HMRC are really failing to kind of take on board what kind of key stakeholders are, are telling them in that respect. But the reason I say that is is really on a couple of reasons. So first of all, let's look at the data that HMRC Cestal produced. So if you look quite recently, just before Christmas, um, HMRC published the information around how CES was used from November 19 to November 20. Uh, so full 12 months. And the CES tool was used approximately 976,000 times. Um, so for all intents and purposes, call that a million. Of all kind of million outcomes of all million times that it was used, it did not produce a result in uh, 188,000 times. So call that roughly 20%. That 20%, if you're not getting an outcome as a client in 20% of cases, that carries a massive tax liability. You cannot afford, if you're a client with 100 contractors, you cannot afford to have 20 or so contractors out of that 100 without status. Because what, what HMRC are leaving you to then do is they're pointing you 
you in the direction of the employment status manual. They're saying you need to go and consider the references 0500 and 0530 plus around how you assess status, which you know for a client that doesn't necessarily have the expertise in, in IR35 can be difficult. HMRC need to have a tool that works all the time. Pretty much every other private sector supplier, Kingsbridge included, will provide you with an outcome 100% of the time. And you know certainly that, that should play into the hands of the end client, you know, where the private sector is still at, you know, outperforming CEST. You've also then got to look at the principles behind the CEST tool. Now, I covered it very briefly, but HMRC CEST tool's most striking difference with the private sector is the CEST tool doesn't properly address the test of mutuality of obligation. Uh, HMRC will only very loosely cover it. In fact, they only consider it for the purpose of saying, is there a contract in existence at all? And beyond that, they, they don't really ask anything really on it. They just assume that it's there. Whereas the private sector, what everybody else considers and what what the courts tell us is that actually there's there's more to that. You know, there there is much more to looking at the test of obligations and MU than just simply saying is there a contract at all? You know, there's many more aspects to, to looking at that part of status than, than just one question or, or two or three questions. That's the most striking difference really between what we're looking at. And until HMRC kind of move their attitude, until they turn that dial and say, actually, yeah, we'll agree with what the courts are saying. We'll agree with what every expert in the UK is, is, is effectively telling them. We'll agree with what the industry is telling us. Until they decide to do that, unfortunately for me, the, the CES tool is just, just not going to be fit for purpose. And we haven't even touched there on, on saying, you know, if you look at the CES tool, I don't think you'll find a broker anywhere in the, in the UK that will ensure those outcomes. Whereas just about, or, or most other private sector um, tools or kind of different I-35 solutions will have some form of insurance behind them. Yeah, makes sense. Thanks, Ryan. Um, right, final question. I'll just put comfort, go to the chat before we wrap things up. So, Better was asked, uh, Ryan, are you expecting any amendments for IR35 law? The conditions are really bad for outside IR35 contractors now. So, I suppose, yeah, any, 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 are you ex- are we expecting any changes to what's in place at the moment? I'm certainly not expecting any changes. I would say, you know, how it's been drafted now and how the kind of final amendment has been drafted for the Finance Act will be how it's implemented. You might see some changes after it kind of beds in. So like typically happens or what typically happens with any new legislation is there'll be about a year's period of it bedding in. So there'll be no real new inquiries off the back of it. It'll just be making sure that it's actually, you know, works, that it actually does what HMRC want it to do. Um, And then after that, that's when HMRC might become a bit more open to kind of what the industry is saying about how it's implemented. You might see something in there um, to kind of give a bit more protection to the contractor if the process of appealing perhaps isn't really having its effect. But I wouldn't assume at this point that anything will change or be different aside from obviously saying, you know, don't rest your hat on these, these changes not coming in. They absolutely are. And I would absolutely plow on at this stage and prepare as though it's happening. You know, uh, there's, there's probably one analogy that I've liked and used a couple of times is if you know that a speed camera at some point is going to be introduced on a road, you'd rather start lowering your speed now in preparation for when that comes in rather than just simply taking the risk in the hope that it never does. You're better off now just preparing, getting ready for this coming in. If something drastic happens and it doesn't, yes, I appreciate that's a you know waste of money, time, et cetera. But the alternative to not doing so is much worse. Um, so certainly get ahead of the, the curve with this and just make sure that you're as compliant as you can be. Perfect. Thanks, Ryan. And then look, we've got one, I think we've got uh, one final question. Actually, this came up with a client the other day, so I'm glad you asked this, Dan. Does Kingsbridge have a position on freelance management providers such as Uno Juno or Worksome, and particularly how to standardise 
comparisons between the offerings of such providers in terms of protections to the end client? Not really one I can answer, unfortunately. I, I don't know the circumstances of which you know that particular supply chain operates. Unfortunately, I mean, by, by all means, if you want to fire over to Paul or myself after this, the circumstances, then yeah, we'll be absolutely to you know happy to give you advice as far as I-35 is concerned. What you are looking for in a solution is is something that is ultimately compliant and is as compliant as reasonably possible. So something that isn't kind of pretending that circumstances exist when they don't. You know, if if you are genuinely compliant, then perfect. If you are not genuinely compliant, then don't try and make it look like it is. That's only going to have bad repercussions later on down the line. Perfect. Thanks, Ryan. Uh, Dan, we, let me come back to you on that as well, because I know we, we are looking into that, you know, Juno situation. So let, let's come back to you once we've got the information. Uh, but that, that's it, everybody. So look, thanks very much for spending an hour with us to talk about IR35, especially thanks to Ryan. Uh, Ryan, that's really, really thorough, really comprehensive. I think you've answered a lot of questions, so I appreciate it. So thanks so much for spending your time with us today. No problem at all. More than happy to um, join if ever anyone wants any IR35 information again. Perfect. Thanks, Ron. Um, everybody and who's going to be around next week, uh, we will be looking at a very different subject. We'll be looking at how to provide our workforce with purpose at a time when actually all our priorities have changed. How can businesses really keep that investment by providing purpose for their workforce? We'll be joined by Rowan Kalicharan, um, who is the HR Director at Benevolent AI and uh, Abigail Wilmore, who is the head of people at Stella McCartney. Uh, so apart from that, thanks everyone for attending. Thanks again, Ryan, and I'll see you all next week. Cheers.